Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Better Words, our reread season. We're having so much fun here. I hope you are as well. Both of today's guests are among our very, very first interviews all the way back in mid-2017. We have had five years to catch up on with these two. It was a lot, but we had so much fun. It is unbelievable. (laughs) So long. Oh, my God. (laughs) After we spoke to Pip Harry about her 2017 YA novel, Because of You, she moved to Singapore for several years and has only recently returned to Australia. But she's also been quite busy on the publishing front too. Well, she sure has. So since 2017, she's published a verse novel for young teens, Are You There, Buddha, in 2021. But she has also moved into middle grade fiction, including the 2020 CBCA Children's Book of the Year for young readers, The Little Wave. Very, very impressive. And then her latest book, August and Jones, was published in June 2022. Augustine Jones is a beautiful middle grade novel all about friendship and inspired by a true story. My favourite thing about this interview that you're just about to hear is that Pip is going to share the real people behind the book and trust us, it is quite the emotional journey. So we hope you enjoy learning it just like we did. It is so lovely to have you back, Pip Harry. Thanks for joining us. Um, what have you been up to in five years? <laughs> oh. You've written a you've written a couple of books since we last spoke to you. Yes, I've been busy. Um, lovely to to be back, Michelle and Caitlin. I just love this podcast, and I can't believe it's been five years. Um, I've been up to a lot. So I actually went to live in Singapore for the better part of five years, actually, and lived there, worked there and just returned um, mid mid last year. I mean, that must have been crazy. I, as much as it's like, oh, everyone's sick of talking about COVID, I just suddenly was like, oh God, what was it like in Singapore? Oh, it was really full on. So we, because of Chinese New Year being in that, you know, in January 2020, we were right away um, one of the top countries for COVID cases and Singapore had a dedicated um, infectious diseases facility and they went into full (laughs) moat. Yeah, there was like temperature taking at every mall and, um, yeah, they were really quick to get on it. Um, So, you know, I came back to Australia actually to do a writers' festival in Queensland and I was so surprised um, that, nothing was really happening oh when was that because i mean australia was so slow to like really get on to everything so yeah definitely i was like where are the masks what's happening um that must have been quite a shock coming back from singapore like early on there yeah so i was back for words on the waves i think it's called um and it was great and really fun and there was a bunch of us authors together and we're all talking about what we're going to do that year and people had trips to New York planned and yeah. <laughs> all around the world and I was like oh no that's not gonna happen 
but I, but I stayed quiet. Um, yeah, no, yeah. At least I got back though, you know, then, then before getting stuck in Singapore for the better part of two years. One was, last quick visit. Back. I've said so many times that it's, it was like after like moving back from overseas to Australia and especially coming back to like small town Australia, it was like stepping back in time because it was like nothing had changed and it's like COVID didn't happen mm-hmm. here in regional Australia. I mean, Australia. in, reg- in so regional Queensland and Rockhampton, it essentially didn't happen. Yeah. I feel like my family yeah. were like, oh, my so God, weird. we're wearing masks to go grocery shopping for like a week in April. And then after that, they were fine. Yeah, it was so, especially after like the UK, I mean, shambolic in comparison to Singapore. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Singapore was actually because I guess like the the benefit of being in one of those countries is that they have had those events in the past and so their response seemed from the outside anyway to be so much more efficient it was it was super efficient um they had vending machines you know with masks and you know all of their apps were up and running really really quickly yeah it was amazing to be there because you did feel like you know you were really being looked after but on the other hand we were full-time mask wearing for two years the kids went to school in masks you couldn't step outside your front door without a mask and there were a lot of eyes on you as well, so I felt um, good coming back to Sydney, even though Delta <laughs> happened yeah. as we were in yeah. hotel quarantine. The first case of Delta um, broke out, so it was like, great, we're back. Yeah, they were reporting that that had come from the hotel that we were in hotel quarantine. <laughs> no, <seriously laughs> and it hadn't. It hadn't. So I was like, so I did see people in our Facebook group because there was like a Facebook group for whatever hotel quarantine you're in. Um, saying like is anyone staying at this particular hotel who and I was like we've got a letter here and I like sent a picture of the letter I was like we've got a letter from the management saying that like the South Australian government has said it has not come from here so like why are you reporting that like it just we were it it, it definitely didn't come from our hotel but it was but it was weird it was all unfolding as we were there and and leaving Anyway, let's let's talk about some nice stuff, which is you've sort of, like, when we spoke to you last time, you had published, I think it was three young adult mm-hmm. books at that time, and you've actually sort of moved into doing some middle grade books. So can you tell us a little bit about your middle grade books that have been published? Um, and I guess let's just talk a little bit about that, that sort of transition mm-hmm. for yeah, you. Yeah, writing for a younger yeah. audience. It is. It has been a big change, um, and it's really just about that voice that started speaking to me was aged ten or eleven, and not seventeen or eighteen or sixteen. And I just felt compelled to write the story. And so initially, so this is I'm talking about the little wave. Yeah, that was the first. I one. I wanted to write it in verse, um, and I I started writing it in verse. And the two voices that came to me were a boy from the beach and a boy from the bush. And I knew that they would communicate with each other and get to know each other through pen pal letters and that they would eventually meet, but everything else was kind of like up in the air. And I was kind of just following almost like in a dream state, following the story. And then a a girl came into the picture, um, Lottie, and I just really wanted to tell her story as well. She, her voice was very loud. And then I had this, first novel for for sort of eight to 12 year olds um, and I sent it to my publishers at UQP and Christina Schultz said this is verse some of it and some of it isn't but we're here to help you (laughs) make it I was gonna you know yeah I was gonna ask had you done 
any verse novels before? No. Like, had you or had you dabbled in that before? No, so I'd never written verse before, but I was reading a lot. So I was especially reading a lot of Sarah Crossan, who's a UK Irish, yeah, beautiful poet, Amazing. beautiful verse novelist, um, and she, I particularly like her book, The Weight of Water. And just was like, you know, and one and um, Moonrise, I think is another one of hers. But yeah, I just was like really taken by the style. So I just was thinking, I'll just give it a go. Yeah. And, and for the most part, I think I pulled it off. <laughs> <laughs> What's that like, though? Because like I'm always amazed and I, I love Sarah Crossan as mm-hmm. well. Always amazed by the emotions which... And, and the way that you can communicate such depth of story in such brevity. So did you, did, did you struggle with that at all? No, it's Did fun, you have to prune it? things back? Yeah, because, <laughs> um, you know, because of you, Head of the River, I'll tell you mine, were all quite lengthy, uh, particularly Head of the River. I think it came in at, um, you know, 75,000 words. But the little way that at sort of 20,000 words, I just didn't really struggle with just like that clarity of idea and voice and, um, but yeah, the editing was very exacting, and you know there were no there was no room for extra words, you know, and so that that was something. It took, took us a while to get it to the polished state, you know, that it was published in. But I really enjoy writing verse, so I decided to write another one. Yeah, <laughs> that's so, so cool. interesting. Isn't it? I love that comment from your publisher that like, oh, some of it's verse, some of it's not, but like, we'll yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some of it's like she said, like cut up you know, um, prose. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I worked with an editor called Mark McLeod, um, who's a very talented editor and he kind of took me in hand and he's very, <laughs> right, this is what po- poetry is. This is where we're going to do line breaks and this is a stanza. And, you know, he was very um, helpful. And, and you know, he just kept telling me to trust the reader as well and not over-explain things. And I think that really helped with getting the book down, you know, to its very, you know, most clear vision um yeah so it was it was so fun to learn like a new style of writing um for a new age group as well and those younger readers are just so enthusiastic and amazing they send me you know paintings and pictures and poems and and they've started up you know pen pal clubs with rural and and city schools you know completely you know so nice on their own you know yeah and they tell me about it I'm just like wow that's amazing so it's been a fun book um I'm interested like was is that about the age range that your daughter is was that maybe one of the reasons why you started sort of hearing that voice do you think yeah I think that does happen so she was maybe just starting uh, school so she she was five um, and the characters are a bit older but but I'd been introduced to this kind of like primary school world you know and that really interested me she used to get um arrows for for good behavior or good work or whatever and she was trying to collect as many arrows as she could so that she could then get a different award and it was all quite structured and you know I'd walk into school and there'd be like this starting school song and all of that stuff I just found really interesting Um, so I did want to write a book set in primary school I think because of you know where she was at yeah for sure yeah like it's a new I mean I guess any new experience that you have as a writer is it must be fodder for it must just set things off and you're like oh yeah this is a new thing like, yeah absolutely I and if something about writing for like writing YA I feel like most of us can maybe remember things about being a teenager a bit more 
than what we remember of primary school. I wonder if that's a bit of a factor. So then once you were there again with your daughter, you were like, oh, Oh. here's all these things. (laughs) For sure. You know, I remember like lunch orders and playground games and it did all start to come back to me, all that that stuff. I would see her with her friends and how they interacted. um, And it was, yeah, I was really interested in that and and did feel like that, you know, fresh memories coming back. Yeah, there are so many funny things that is just so specific to primary school and like when we often think about school we think about high school your uni or uni which is can be quite similar in the way that you you know you like learn things and you do your assignments or whatever and primary school is just so different and some things really stick like my mum still sings the walking out the door song um from my (laughs) primary school which was what the vice principal used to do and he would sort of like sing the this is the walking out the door song and he would say like each year level and that was when like in a whole school assembly to, to yeah. like orderly leave he would like call us out but it became a yeah. song and my mom still sings that <laughs> <laughs> i love that That's so cute oh. yeah i remember this the song that was played at my daughter's school was happy by you know pharrell all oh, right great you know, so and i fun. sort of like i didn't quite use that song because you know copyright but I was definitely thinking about that, you know, how they bounce kids into school with this song and, you know, yeah, it's really cool. So, yeah, I mean, and then I followed my daughter's age, I guess, because Are You There Buddha, which is my next verse novel, um, is about a 12-year-old girl and at that stage she she had become 11. Um, so I think I definitely wrote that more for her, you know, and what stage she was at in, in life. And Has she yeah. read your books? Any Like any of them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she she's sort of is not that interested in my YA stuff. She's like, oh. yeah, I started it. But she's didn't... not quite there yet. Yeah, yeah maybe when she's a bit older. <laughs> but uh, she's read The Little Wave, Are You There, Buddha and August and Jones. And um, she, she comes out and she goes, Mum, seriously, I know I'm your daughter and I'm supposed to say this, but that was amazing. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Oh, that's so yeah. cute. So she does really encourage me and I sometimes will check in with her on stuff like, you know, would you say this or... You think this is realistic? <laughs> is this what is this what the kids are saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes I think I'm a little off base, so I got to check. Oh, that's, that's really so cute. cute. It's like I saw um I saw I follow Emily Gale on Twitter, and I saw her tweet that while she was um in the UK, she had given a copy of Nina Kenwood's new book Unnecessary Drama mm-hmm. to her daughter because their daughter's like doing VCE and stuff and she was like she's been studying super hard I wanted to give her I left this with her you know to enjoy mm. after her study and um, you know she's just messaged me to say she absolutely loved mm. it and I was just like oh my god this is so like I just love hearing this stuff like that's so cute like I oh. saw that post as well and I think there was like chocolate sultanas left with the book yeah. and I was like oh that's yeah because then Emily was like oh I realize I've obscured the title of the book by putting this on there but I was like oh my god my parents would never do anything like that yeah I know I often share the surprise element like I love that but my like my mum did I think it's more that someone left something on your bed as a surprise I'm like I love that I wish someone did that for me but they would get me books and stuff which is which is sweet yeah and my mum made me read the book thief like when I was in uni she was the one who was like you have to read this book it's really good so yeah I think that's beautiful like for me, like that's something that's really special with my mum was like memories of going to the library together mm-hmm. and talking about books together and like then getting into podcasts and like, you know, we'll uh, I made her listen to Chat 10 Looks 3 and so we'll talk about the books that they talk about and stuff and 
So I think like that's so that's so beautiful that you can share that with your daughter and that you can share it about the work that you'll do too and like share your career yeah. with her too. Exactly, yeah. And now she's, you know, she started high school, so she's so much more aware of my books being a thing. You know, in, in her school library, she can pick them up and borrow them. Um, her friends know you know have read my books and know who I am and yeah she's trying she's definitely sussing that out and in Singapore that wasn't happening you know like my books were in libraries but I wasn't very well known there and you know I was always it's a bit different being like homegrown Aussie YA yeah exactly it's so (laughs) nice to be home and like touring schools again and kind of like getting out there and going to bookstores and and doing my job really like I really miss you know being here in Australia has the release for August and Jones then been quite different because you were actually here for it? Oh, yes. Yes. So amazing launch for August and Jones where I was able to. So I don't know if you know about this book, but it's inspired by. Yeah, tell us. Tell us about, yeah, tell us tell about, us about everything it. Everything I had this book. It was lovely. It was so cute. Yeah. So it's inspired by a real life friendship. And uh, the real life friendship is between two kids called Jarrah Podesta and Matilda Cross. I read about them in an SMH Two of Us uh, feature in, I think, 2019. And I just was so struck by their friendship, by their courage, uh, and just how incredible they were. So basically, um, Jarrah Podesta had a rare childhood eye cancer and lost one of his eyes as a two-year-old. And then when he was aged about nine or ten, his other eye became affected and he lost that second eye. But the really amazing thing about it was his attitude to to losing that eye and becoming blind, but also how uh, Matilda supported him in that at school. She was there for him that day with her arm out. She guided him around the playground. She learnt Braille, which is no small thing, you know, for a kid in, say, grade four to do. Um, and she was just there for him as this calm presence, talking to him and guiding him through this experience. Um, what an amazing duo these two are. So I got to actually meet them in person in Castlemaine. So I flew down to Mel- Melbourne, drove up to Castlemaine, met them, met their families, um, and they were as, as brilliant as I thought they would be. And we launched the book together. So they oh, signed wow. books alongside me. Um, we presented That's together, beautiful. the kids were able to ask questions of them as well as me about their story. So yeah, it was super, super special. Wow, That's that amazing. amazing. And how old are they now? They are 14 now and they go to the same high school and they're still friends, <laughs> which I wasn't sure about. I mean, you know, if you're friends with someone at 11, you're not necessarily friends at 14, but they're still um, in the same group at school and, and still hanging out together and yeah, when you see them together, you can see how special their friendship is. That's really awesome. Mm. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about, I guess, what unfolds in the book. It is middle grade, obviously, eight to 12-year-olds, that sort of age range. Um, but it's basically about... Um, but not two... verse this time as well. Not it's... verse. Yeah. Back to narrative prose. It tells the story of August and Jones, who are two 11-year-olds. Um, and basically August... He likes the library, fun facts, um, pop music, knitting. He is not into football, but his dad is a former AFL star and his brother is also a rising uh, football star. 
So he's struggling with August that. August and I share all the same pressure. interests. Mm. Yeah, 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 exactly. I can really relate to, to August. He's like, library, tick, tick, So he's, uh, so Jones, Kirby, she moves to Sydney from her farm because of the a drought and they need to make money and so the, the family moves to the city. Um, she's completely different from August. So she likes rock climbing, adventuring and running and she's very high energy. She does have... Oh, my God, sounds like my partner. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's Jack. Um, she does have retinoblastoma, which is the rare eye cancer, and she has lost an eye. So that, that um, it, she has in common with Jarrah. Anyway, the two of them are paired together. Um, at school and and August is made her sort of guide at school to just show her around. And then they have this really tough year together where August's family kind of falls apart and Jones has a diagnosis from her doctors which is not good and has to go through chemotherapy and treatment. Um, but they decide to, to hatch this brilliant plan which is the August and Jones must-see bucket list. So together they decide they're going to um, run across the Harbour Bridge, meet a rare monkey, um, what else they do, and we climb. See Hamilton. <laughs> see Hamilton, <laughs> exactly. Yes, a musical reference. I know. Yes. But, like, they, yeah. they were so, um, it was so Sydney. Like, they run across the Harbour Bridge <laughs> and they go see Hamilton and they went into the Van Gogh Alive which was here for ages and I didn't see it and then I was reading it being like oh I've done oh I've not run across the Harbour Bridge I saw Hamilton um yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen the Harbour Bridge Zoo. um you know like <laughs> I was thinking about I really That's wanted nice. it to be a very Sydney story yeah and so I wanted them to do quite landmark things and also like um, climbing Mount Kosciuszko. That's kind of like an Australian thing that you, you do when you're a kid or a teenager often. Um, yeah, it was really fun making their bucket list and kind of then setting the characters off to do that. Yeah, it was, it was an awesome book to write. I wrote it during lockdown in Singapore. So it was kind of an outlet for me. You know, I could go on these adventures uh, with these two yeah. cool kids. Yeah. And yeah. like if you're feeling homesick, like you can really get back into that Sydney yeah. groove. It was great. Great yeah. book to write. Um, and it's been just so, even more special to be able to share it with um, Jared and Matilda and, you know, their families. And they just love the book. I, I sent it to them and asked them, would they like to make any changes? And they came back with two things. I was like, you can change literally anything in this book. Oh, my God. What did they want changed? So they wanted, uh, instead of a rare monkey, they wanted it to be a penguin because um, Jarrah wanted to see a penguin before he lost his sight. I couldn't change that because we'd already done cover art and there was a monkey, oh, there's a monkey on, the on the cover. cover. Yeah. And I was like, That's, no, we yeah. can't change that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, they wanted me to have the the rainbow scarf. So um, basically Matilda would wear a rainbow scarf in the playground so that Jarrah could see her as his sight was failing and they wanted that to be in the book. And I said, yes, I'll, I'll definitely do that. And I did yeah, make that I part of the book. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so, that's so nice. I just, I just think it's really funny because I can imagine the um, – like the conversation you go back to your publisher and it kind of goes back to the covers meeting and everything being like, we need to change this monkey to a penguin. <laughs> um, exactly right. But, um, but yeah, it's really, I love that that's the only two things that they wanted changed as well. That's very Yeah, cute. they're such sweeties. And they gave me, this was so special. I, I had tears in my eyes. They gave me a Braille thank you letter. Oh. 
um, yeah, after the launch, and it's one of now one of my prized possessions. They said, "Don't frame it, don't frame it," because you'll squash the oh, braille. Yeah, you have, oh yeah, you'll squash it. Of course, you can't do that. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. I mean, I had I had absolutely no idea that a real that real people inspired the book, and then of course mm. at the end you have it in the acknowledgements, and I was just like what like, yeah. like reveal, I've, seen, reveal, right? I've seen some stuff on social media and I was like ah oh, I'm not gonna like we'll talk about that yeah, yeah. I don't know I'm I must not have missed that clearly. Too much I had, about I had it no idea I wanna... or maybe I'd just yeah. forgotten often I forget when I start reading a book and then I'm just like oh yeah yeah I mean a lot of people don't know so I toured a lot of bookstores and talked to booksellers and they were like really this is based on a true story I'm like yes yes you know I mean, um, it's an amazing story. You. It's so I'm so that more people will get to know it now as well through August and Jones instead of it's Matilda and Jared, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Was it a case of you sort of approaching them and their families and being like, "I have this idea. This is what I want to do. Do you mind?" Mm-hmm. Or had you like already written it and then been like, "Hey, I've done this thing." Like, how did you go about approaching? It? Would you have not done it if they didn't want to do it? I mean, it sounds like they, they wouldn't. Yeah, I think if they hadn't been on board with it, you know, some major changes would have been made. But uh, I did this, hey, I wrote this book about <laughs> it, was, it was that option. Um, and, and it was a very anxious wait. Uh, I sent an email. I found them uh, through the primary school that they went to. And the email went to, you know, uh, Matilda's mum. And I just waited by my email. <laughs> refresh, 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 yeah. <laughs> And what pinged back at me was this beautiful, like, oh, my goodness, we're so excited. Um, Let us have a, you know, bring the families together for a meeting and sort of discuss it further. And they were just from the get-go just really into it and really supportive. Um, So, yeah, I lucked out with with them and the families and, yeah, their reaction was great. Oh, that is so good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And as, as Caitlin said, you know, like more people can get to know about this now, which is wonderful. And, you know, I think in terms of writing for a middle grade audience, I guess the same as when you write for young adults, you want to approach themes and stuff. I guess you just have to do it in a, in a different way, maybe not quite so, um, I don't want confrontational is not the right word, but maybe not so, um, yeah, confrontational Mm -hmm. as you do in, in YA with an older audience. But, you know, it sounds like, you know, with this book, you're really looking into that whole idea of like what boys like mm-hmm. versus what girls like doing. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, I guess that's such a like tale as old as time discussion, but so nice to see it explored in middle grade fiction as well. Yeah, because I mean, it's still really important. And that's something that's a big part of August's story with his brother and his dad. And Mm. I even thought the obviously with Jones, um, with her cancer and her treatment and everything, even just like that, the first time August came over to to her house, to her apartment, um, he was like, "Uh, can I see your eye collection? Because she has all of her like prosthetic eyes from her whole life. And I was like, that's I mean, of course, kids want to see the eyes. That's so Mm -hmm it's so funny but so real and everything mm-hmm. like an 11 year old boy would absolutely ask to absolutely. see the fake eyes yeah. <laughs> and that, that actually was yeah. debated a bit you know in the ed- editing stages where we were you know the question was they don't know each other very well would she really show her entire eye collection to him you know and I was like yeah 
if he asked and if she trusted him in that moment yes like um yeah. so yeah we really i've sort of fought to keep that scene like, in, i do feel like it's a thing that kids do as well they were like where they're like let me show you this like let me show you this yeah thing. yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> like you bond over that that thing and you're like oh i gotta show you this. yeah yeah like, so i, I just know. had uh, spinal surgery and like i just want to show everyone my scar <laughs> <laughs> like, even if she grows down yeah. like no look at this scar I've got it's amazing yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty yeah I think that's pretty normal yeah. and I just thought yeah. I mean even just the I don't know I suppose the bluntness of some of the comment and like other people mm-hmm. in the class as well being like oh can you take it out like how does it work yeah. like what's going on like yeah. they're it's just so you know they're just innocently asking and that's what kids do and yeah they do so I had a- <laughs> adults really step around that stuff sometimes and just like I'm just never but it's ask. good too to encourage asking questions around especially around like disability and stuff and yeah. not just being like oh let's just ignore that because it's uncomfortable but actually like in a respectful way yeah asking questions and and making the disability visible rather than yeah just being like oh let's be pc about it like Mm -hmm. you still obviously have to be respectful of a human being but yeah it's it's a bit i I guess it's a bit laughing watching a lot of uh you can't ask that Mm. at the moment so i guess it's a bit of that thing of like kids probably have less of that filter that adults are like oh that's not appropriate or whatever yeah, exactly and, so I mean yeah. um Jarrah when he went into surgery to have his eye removed he apparently said goodbye eyeball and that was his last thing that he said before you know and he also talked about his eyeball he's like I think it needs to go on holiday somewhere like to Hawaii and be sipping a fruity drink and like somewhere else just not but he had this great sense, and still does have this great sense of humour. He talked about, you know, he wants to go skydiving and he was like, I'll meet my eyes at the end, at the bottom, you know. And he's, <laughs> he's just fantastic. And so I share that a little bit with the school groups that I talk to. And they, they sort of tentatively laugh, you know, when I say goodbye eyeball or something that, that Jarrah said and that also Jones says in the book. But I'm like, it's okay, you know, he does have a sense of humour and, and he is like brutally honest about, you know, what he's gone through. Um so, yeah, that was important. I did actually, I worked with a sensitivity reader for this book called Olivia Musket, who has quite a big presence um, on social media and is a writer as well for young people. Um, and she actually helped me a lot with a lot of the technical details um, around disability and blindness. And, yeah, she was fantastic. Um, and I really needed to, to work with her to, to make sure I got it right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because there's a, obviously like an ongoing debate um, which sometimes some some things that people say makes me roll my eyes of like, if you haven't lived, have lived experience of it, you can't write it. And in some cases that's true, but I think in a situation like this where you are the author who's acknowledging, hey, I don't have experience with this, I'm going to work with someone who can help me because I know that's going to make the story better and more authentic and stuff. Like it sounds like that was a really good collaborative process. Yeah, and yeah, borrow experiences from the real life kids who inspired the story as well. Which is, it's yeah, the book is probably it's probably a lot more real than maybe people would first think. Is that right? I think so. I mean, I think people do have found it quite confronting some of the medical stuff and the situations that the kids, but particularly Jones you know, finds herself, you know, in. Yeah, there are people have said they cr- have cried and felt quite emotional and really felt like they went on this kind of journey with, with her and with the two kids together. But that, you know, at the end of the book, they feel that 
hope and friendship and, you know, sense of their future being really bright. Um, yeah. So yeah, from that point of view, yeah, every reader has had a different reaction, but it's a, a lot of have said that it's confronting in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, I guess like there is another, another discussion I see around as well of like, Oh, should kids be reading stuff that that is, that is like really confronting and stuff. And it's like, well, actually I think, you know, kids can handle it, can't they? And, you know, yes, it's confronting, but it happens to, to real people and real kids yeah. and yeah. real kids go through these things. And, you know, so we, we interviewed um, Kimberly, um, Rebecca Bradley mm-hmm. a few seasons ago, and that was about a quite, quite a confronting book about um, sexual mm-hmm. abuse. And obviously this is completely different. But the thing is, we were talking about this idea that like, yes, it's confronting and you've obviously got to be careful how you approach that for a young reader and you've got to be sensitive of a younger age. But this stuff happens in the real world. So there's, I, I guess where I feel like we're well past the point of saying, well, kids can just like read the famous five yeah. or something. And like that yeah, is like, just this imaginary happy world <laughs> where nothing nothing bad go no, nothing bad happens because especially in the last few years and and your daughter would have experienced this as well as you said living in singapore like kids have lived through this with us they know that bad stuff happens so it to me and i'm not a parent but it seems like it's much better to allow them to kind of explore that within the safety net of of a story a fictional yeah. book absolutely absolutely um, or or a, a real life mm-hmm. book that's written in a fictionalized way yeah. and allow them to explore those emotions and stuff like that's what I do when I when I read when I read books and they might be heavy or whatever even as an adult it's like it is a way of exploring things that you might not have experienced and it can be confronting at times but there's no reason why you know younger readers can't explore that too especially like if their parents are like confident that they they think they're ready and they can handle that and stuff or their teachers or whoever's helping them choose books yep. if they're like yeah they, they they've they've got the maturity to handle that or whatever then like there are plenty of happy books out there as well of course and we love a we love an uplifting happy <laughs> book too but you know I think when there's a sensitive topic like you've discussed and you know you can include hope and emotion and, yeah. and lovely things as well I think it's it's a really good opportunity for kids to yeah, absolutely. Yes. And that's what my books do. Not just August and Jones, but The Little Wave, Aida Buddha, right back to, you know, my first book. They they are unflinching and look at the world as it really is um, and don't sugarcoat it. And that's the kind of author that I am. Um, and I think often, you know, with my middle grade books, they're often read alongside a parent um, as well. And so they open up really interesting discussions where, you know, you can talk about things like illness, death, you know, in, in the case of August and Jones, family separation, things like that, and have these conversations in a safe space in your family by sharing this story. Um, I think that's really important. I actually had a girl come up to me at, recently in Melbourne at a book event who was 11 years old. She was on um, crutches and she came towards me to get her book signed. And I said, oh, did you break your leg? You know, what happened? And she said, oh, no, I've had bone cancer for the last year and a half. I've been battling bone cancer. And her mum was standing kind of behind her with a toddler on her hip and she said she wanted to come today. She asked to come to, to meet you. 
and she had read the book already two or three times um, and, you know, it had obviously struck such a chord with her, you know, going through cancer at that age. And, yeah, she was incredible, incredible. And it just reminded me, you know, <laughs> I've written this story and I get I get to, like, share it with kids who are actually going through cancer um, or other serious illness. Um, yeah, it's I feel incredibly privileged to do that. Well, I mean, this is in no way as as nice or emotional as that, but Head of the River, I remember, was one of the first young adult books that I read where I felt really seen mm-hmm. in terms of, like, anxiety, perfectionism, all that fun yeah. stuff. And so I do think that you are really good at tapping into that. And I think as a reader, it's special to find a book, especially, like, one of the first ones where you're like, oh, my gosh, like – this feels like it could be me that's me yeah um yeah it's it's so special and like having anxiety or whatever like that's you know there are plenty of books about that now Mm. but it was just that when I started reading YA as an adult um you know I was like oh my gosh like this actually I've, I've never seen a teen book where you know the the protagonist was this much of a and a neurotic nerd because <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. just not you know like especially because when I started reading YA and stuff and when I was in high school it was very much like the twilight era yeah. of of YA yeah, it so it was a very different, different portrayal of of teens and stuff yeah yeah no and I um, set out to write a book about messy teenagers who struggled who made bad decisions who were in the case of Lenny a type personality who's like really really tightly wound and I was like that um, as a teenager. <laughs> so I knew how to write that character. Yeah. yeah um, I'm yeah. really glad that you connected to that book, actually, because, you know, oh, a lot yeah, of people think of that book one as of my a sports favorites. book. And it's not. Oh, no, and that was the thing I was like, I think I was surprised. I was like, I hate sport, and yet I love this yeah, book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but I think it is, it's, a, it's the thing. And I always tell people this about when it comes to storytelling in general is like, people like within marketing you know people might not have had the same experience as you've had but when you're telling your story you need to tap into the emotions because they probably will have experienced the shame perfectionism whatever like people can tap into the the emotion even if they haven't had the same experience yeah absolutely anyway um Pip, it's been so wonderful to chat to you again, um, catch up on the three books that you've published <laughs> since we spoke to you. Um, I think that's the most of any person that we've revisited. It really is. In and you're series. not the only one that it's been five years as well. So well done. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so well, that I is a, a two, very good a achievement. two-book deal. So I, I banged out two in two years, which I never do, as you probably know. Um, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to slow down a bit now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Have a have a bit of a rest. Have a bit yeah. of a rest. Um, congratulations on August and Jones being released as well. And I'm glad that you got to enjoy the actual yeah, launch. Release, um, yeah. Where can people find and follow you online? Oh, you can find me at my website, uh, just pipharry.com. Uh, or I'm on the socials, Insta and Twitter on at pipaz. That's H-A-Z. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Let's so maybe much. let's not leave it five years next let's time. Not <laughs> good luck for, for all the exciting things that are coming up, your wedding especially. Thank you. I'm sure you'll you'll see some up. Yeah, I know. We're telling up. everyone it's like just keep an eye on Michelle's Instagram. It'll all be there. We're all very excited. I am I and also I am doing wedding photos in a bookshop. Have oh, oh, yeah. great. That is very ah. cool. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> very me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Pip. Um, enjoy the rest of your night. Thanks for joining okay, us. Okay, thanks. Bye.
Ellie Marnie is the best-selling and award-winning author of the Every series, and she's been very busy since we spoke to her about self-publishing No Limits all the way back in 2017 with White Knight in 2018, the Circus Heart series, None Shall Sleep in 2020, The Killing Code in 2022, and Some Shall Break, which is coming in 2023. In this interview, we're going to talk a lot about The Killing Code, which is her brand new book in 2022. It's a historical serial killer mystery featuring World War II codebreakers in Washington. And that sounds just like my cup of tea. We we're also going to talk to Ellie about her writing and publishing journey, how it's all evolved, including her experience self-publishing some of those books and the incredible research trips she goes on and the, all the work she does in all of her books. And it is quite the wild ride. Yeah, we talked to her for so long, actually. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. So Ellie, welcome back. You were actually one of our first ever guests, really, for this podcast. So thanks for joining us again. You're very welcome. And it's delightful to be back. And I can't believe that I am the... I am one of the originals, one of the original interviewees. I know. You are. I mean, it's so exciting. We absolutely wouldn't have even had any episodes aired when you agreed to come on. <laughs> so, like, looking back, I'm like, God, like, I am so grateful for everyone who agreed to join us when we were like, so we think we want to start a podcast. And you were probably like the second or third person we ever interviewed. Yeah, just, but it just was ridiculous. Just, and but... podcasts weren't as popular back then. No. Like it was a very new thing. Yeah, book podcasts, like it was new. It was new. So we really appreciate that. And um, actually, I think that's sort of a good a good point to, to start off with to talk about because you have always been so active in supporting other Australian authors and the whole Love Oz YA sort of industry for lack of a better word um, and you do a lot in that space so since we last spoke to you how has that all evolved? Um, it has evolved well into a bit of a, a mammoth structure I mean look there's been some ups and downs with OzYA with YA community stuff in the last I mean how long has it been has it been f- like so it was five, five years five years yeah, yeah. we started okay. in 2017 half a decade so oh my god it has it has been ages but you know like in the last five years yes I started Love Oz Way A book club on Facebook which was really great and we've got like a thousand members or something now which is incredible um, and Love Oz Way A exists as an organization and it has community newsletters and it has an advocacy policy and you know I mean there's stuff happening in the community and the, and the connections between the authors, I think, um, themselves and also between authors and readers are still really strong. But we've also lost a lot, you know. I mean, we've lost the Centre for Youth Literature, which was a real blow. And that was just just such a labour of love for the people who worked in it and it was just kind of unceremoniously dissolved and then or absorbed, I should say, into... Um, State Library Victoria and and it never really um, they said they would continue to promote but of course you know that hasn't really happened and we also lost yeah and we also lost Reading Matters you know the the conference for um, teachers librarians booksellers publishers and authors that was organized I think biannually and 
you know, that was an amazing resource. That was where Love Osboye started and now the conference itself no longer exists, which is really sad. We've no longer got the Inky Awards. We no longer have Inside a Dog, which used to be an amazing resource for YA mm. in Australia. So, you know, I think um, government policies over the last 10 years have really beaten down a lot of the cultural life of the country and literature and particularly, you know, definitely YA literature has suffered as a result. Mm. So on some levels, it's been great and podcasts like yours have thrived. And on other levels, um, on an official level um, and on a uh, government funding level, for instance, yeah, not so good. Yeah, it is interesting to, you know, to sum it up like that, because you're right, the conferences and some of those awards and like, you know, things like that have, yeah, unfortunately, you know, things have changed in that space of this community. But I do think, I mean, so much Love Oz YA is being published and so much is being read. And yeah, like, that's wonderful. But you're right, we need some of that other stuff back. It would be really great if we could get some, like, uh, I guess, state and federal government support for, you know, advocating for and promoting local YA literature. I I just feel like the community has pulled together really hard and we've done an amazing job to make it happen. And I'm certainly only a very minor part of that, you know, like I love Osweyer Book Club is the, the, the only thing that I kind of have the capacity to run um, apart. I mean, I have a self-publishing connection um, as well, but that's not related to YA. So it's like um, people like Emily Gale and and um, Daniel Binks and you know other people who are involved in the community who kind of had a, a leading role in the community have continued to promote and advocate, which has been great. And I don't think we've seen a drop off in the amount of YA that's been published. I just think it would be really good if we had a little bit more support to do the work of encouraging people to read it encouraging you know teenagers to read local literature yeah because yeah, that's always been a problem with with it hasn't it that there are people who love Oswaye like us but it's hard to get actual teenagers to know and to read and I do think it's it's better than like when we were at school which was ages ago um but it's still definitely like yeah it's great that adults are reading these books but they should be teen first like that's who the audience is intended to be and if they don't know that they exist then yeah it's incredibly hard for them to be able to learn to love these books or to find them or to you know know that I feel like sometimes it's it is a bit of a gateway isn't it if you find one Love Oz YA author like maybe they follow them online and they see them recommending something else like you know, we've spoken to Tobias Madden and he, he does lots of recommendations on social media, for example. So if you were to follow him, you might then follow a bunch of other people. And it's yeah. that, it, it's, but it's getting that into schools and libraries in the first place. I mean, place. it is a rabbit hole once you get involved. You just keep reading everyone's books and it's amazing. I mean, I think, um, you know, the independent channels have kind of taken over. So like maybe Book Talk has taken over in terms of promotion and recommendation um, or maybe people are getting their recommendations on Instagram with Bookstagram community. You know, like the platforms are always changing. So there's always the possibility that there'll be a revival of certain books or that the recommendations are still coming thick and fast. 
you know. I do remember Lily Wilkinson saying recently, though, that, you know, when she went around, she, she did a whole lot of schools, um, in, both in Victoria and in Queensland and interstate. Um, and she said every single school library she went into, the librarian there was like, oh, I really wish we still had Inside a Dog, you know, where there was one central hub where we could get all of our recommendations or I really wish that, mm. you know, we could, um, we still had Reading Matters Conference where we could all get together and talk about the things that excited us. So, you know, um, I'm really kind of hopeful that now that we've had a change of government, there'll be some support for, uh, I don't know, this sort of stuff or at least... The arts in general. <laughs> the arts in general, the life, yeah. <laughs> life and culture of yeah. the arts in the country. That would be really nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, although like at least um, the the Lovers YA committee do put out some amazing uh, recommendation roundups and things. They but do, as you say, it's so sad to lose lose those things as well. But yeah, I definitely I love getting their monthly emails with like what's what's coming up, what new releases are out, what to look for, and it's something we look at, you know, when we're looking for future guests as well. What's what's going to be coming out in a few months that will be suitable for the podcast so that committee do an amazing work but it's they not do. it's not easy to take that on no yeah. and it's all voluntary and then they don't have any external support so really they're just doing it in the margins of their own lives and work and I just think they're just doing an amazing job to keep it together and it is a real resource you're right and they do put out posters of you know reader likes and recommendations and things like that for school but it would be so good if we could if we had the opportunity to funnel that more widely. And also, it is it does tend to be very Melbourne-centric. I mean, I think the YA community for a long time was very Melbourne-centric, and I'd like to see it spread a, a bit more widely into other states as well, you know. It would be really nice. Um, yes. But I'm just kind of <laughs> we hoping... Agree. <laughs> more yeah. I'm yeah. really hoping that one day we'll get a bit more support and um, and have the opportunity to share the message around a bit more that would be really nice but you know these things come and go there's cycles I mean we were talking about cycles in publishing um, some author friends and I the other day and you know I mean 10 years ago everyone was saying oh that's it YA is dead <laughs> oh you know um, it's Twilight's yeah. over. Twilight's yeah, over. No that's exactly right. <laughs> People were really saying that in the industry. It's like, oh yeah, it had its day. It was nice while it, while it lasted, yeah. you know, and and then it, nothing nothing really changed. You know, YA continues to be published in this country and is still really selling strongly. You know, in the market, both here and abroad. So absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that just reminded me a couple of weeks ago now. I heard someone in our sales team say after the Heartstopper TV series was massive and all four books were in the top 10 on the book scan charts that he hasn't seen that since Twilight, that a whole series like that was in the top uh, 10. And I was like, that's really cool and, like, so good for, yeah, for it to be. I and know. it's exciting as well. Like, it's a contemporary, so nice. a contemporary thing. It's queer. It's not an American, like... It, it's not a twilight you know yeah. sort of type of thing i think it's nice that it's like a contemporary story that it's graphic novels like yes. yeah for, for all so those exciting. reasons yeah and like of course everyone it's, for all those yeah. reasons yeah. it's it's, it's cool. amazing that it's, it's you amazing. know done so well and it really i think it shows you how the taste 
of YA readers has changed and evolved too over the last um, 10 to 15 years. I mean, I mean, teenagers now are just so much more like aware than we ever were of, you know, racism, sexism, all this stuff. They want queer stories. They yeah, want totally. diverse stories right. that aren't just tokenistic. Like they, they are so much more like nuanced than we were as teens, I think. And Absolutely. it's showing, I think, in the stories. There's just no way you can um, write something now that neglects to be aware of those topics, you know. It's just that people's tastes have changed and people's awarenesses have, have really changed. It's the language changes, I think, that I've noticed the most. You know, the care that people now require when you're publishing a book for young people that that you're a paying attention to issues around ableism, around racism, sexism, homophobia and transphobia. You know, like it's really important to try and keep those things in mind when you're writing. Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest changes even in the the types of books that I read as a teenager versus versus now. Um, Speaking of books, let's let's talk about (laughs) your books because you've been very busy in the five years since we spoke to you. You've had some really fun stuff coming, and you've you've really like you've always written sort of crime based books, which I think is just so fun for a YA audience. But you've gone quite deep with with some of them, and I think. One of them, which I have on my shelf but haven't read yet, which is the story of my <laughs> life, which would be like the title of my memoir. Um, but my endless TBR. <laughs> my TBR. <laughs> yeah, yes. endless TBR, endless. <laughs> but yes, like Mind Hunter, like you've you have really, yeah, you've gone into that stuff, and I love it because you, yeah, it's. I just I think you don't play down any of that stuff that. Is seemingly not like teen book fodder, I guess. Yeah, I okay. So I mean, okay, it's been five years. How do I catch up? I mean, mm. I did the Ever yeah. series, and then I did yeah. <laughs> so I checked. We technically like say that in our episode from five years ago, we, you were about to release or had just released No Limits, which you self-published. Oh, wild! So, so it's been that long. It's been that we long. Spoke about so we attempted. <laughs> to have like a book club that we thought other people would join in on and I think we did it twice but one of them was technically White Knight that we did right well White Knight came out after or before oh god see this is what I mean don't feel bad because even I don't remember when the release days the release years were whether it was No Limits first or White Knight I think it was White Knight that came out and then No Limits or my, uh, it might have been the other way around. Who knows? But they anyway, were close yeah. I did. I, think I did. It's okay they were very remember. close together. It it's all starts to blur together. Yeah. But then I did three books in another self-published series. So another indie published series. Three books in a circuit. What in a series called Circus Hearts, and that was really just a an experiment to sort of see whether or not I could keep up with the pace of indie publishing because. You know, self-publishing, if you want to be successful in it, you really do have to have a high turnover rate. So I wrote those books, published them in very short succession. I published them one month apart in 2018. 
Um, and then I think I, ex- I, and I had a lot of fun doing it, but I think I completely exhausted myself as well because um, yeah, 2019, like I didn't have anything. <laughs> it was an enormous, enormous amount of work. And I was just, yes, very tired afterwards. But then look, by the time that finished and I was thinking, okay, well, I would really like to continue. I'd like to go back to Trad Pub and try something, but I I wanted to open out new markets. You know, I was looking for new markets and mainly the reason was because I would, you know, I, I had have always wanted to eventually write full time. So I was thinking, well, if I can't, get into larger markets I won't be able to I won't be able to write full-time so I thought okay well then I'll write a book for a US audience and um, I will get a new agent which is what I did because I pitched I wrote half of a book and pitched it to uh, a new agent that had been recommended to me by another author and then he contacted me and said hey I really like this can you can you give me the rest of it? <laughs> I was like, sure, I'll just whip that up. Hang on <laughs> give a me minute. three give me three months. <laughs> <Not yet. laughs> but yeah, basically basically I was re- had reached a point, I think, in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, when it was you know, you reach these sort of crossroad times in your career where you kind of go, Okay, it's really fish or cut bait time and I thought, well, if I can't crack a larger market, maybe I should just you know, go back to writing a book every couple of years and doing it as a kind of a side gig. A part-time <laughs> yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, this is it. This is my shot. I'll give it a shot um, and see if I can sell a book into the US. And then I was at writing retreat with a whole bunch of other authors and I, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to write. This is going to be my big shot novel. What am I going to write? <laughs> <laughs> And then a friend of mine who's an author, um, Kat Pacat, uh, so C.S. Pacat, who writes the Captive Prince series, and she was like, isn't, isn't there a book that you have always wanted to write? And I said, uh, yeah. I've, she was like, look, if you only had one last book before you die, <laughs> what would you like to write? <laughs> What would you what would you do? I love this. Yeah. It's your last chance, yeah. Ellie. What yeah. are you gonna do? And I said wow. I said, I've always wanted to write a YA serial killer thriller. Cat was like, Yes, that sounds amazing. And I said, I want to write a YA <laughs> Silence of the Lambs and she said, Yes, that sounds amazing. As soon as I so read the blurb, I, like, I had the opening shots of Silence of the Lamb when she's doing the training and running. I was like I could picture it, which is obviously where you said it. So I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I really did dive into into Thomas Harris's work and also into the work of John Douglas, who was uh um, former FBI forensic profiler and um, you know the, so I kind of went right quite deeply into the development of the FBI behavioral science unit at Quantico in in the US um, at, to look for ideas and um, and I had a, a huge amount of fun writing that book because it was really like okay I'm just going to write the book that I want to write you know, yeah. and I just kind of threw everything out the window, and then I just wrote what I would have loved to write, to read if it was me reading the book, and um, and then I got halfway through it, and I got the collie wobbles, and I I gave it to some friends, and I was like, ah, oh, is this 
is this is going to be too hardcore? And, and they all time. said, what no, it doesn't yeah. matter. Don't, just keep writing it. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I thought it was okay. I, th I mean, I was enjoying writing it and I thought it was enjoyable to read, yeah. but I was very nervous that it was too intense for a no, young no adult else would audience. Like it. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. just that there would be, it was too hardcore. You know, there's a lot about yeah. serial killers and there's a lot of murders, there's some gore, there's, uh, it's really intensely psychologically thrilling I guess on the page so it was a really intense book to write and I thought this is never going to sell as a YA book <laughs> but it did so my agent my agent liked it and I I took him on and um, and then he he sent it out to 25 different publishers in the states and we literally got down to the last publisher on the list everybody else knocked it back and then we got down to Little Brown and they said, they said, yes, they want to take it. It was an absolute shot out of the blue. And I was, I, I was kind of astonished that it sold at all. <laughs> and then, um, and then it, it turned into a New York Times bestseller. So it was like, okay, <laughs> so that worked. <laughs> I love Yeah, that. I guess people did want to read about this yes. after all. <laughs> I guess oh, they did. Yes. And I'm wondering why it's taken me so long to actually pick it up because I've had it on my shelf since we got back to Australia and I haven't read it yet. And now I really want to read it because like I'm obsessed with true crime podcasts. Well, so... You should have read it by I know, now, I should have. I should have. I'm sorry, <laughs> it, Ellie. It really is the case of the... No, don't <laughs> apologize. It's not, it's not like English class at school. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you must read this set Usually text. Usually when we would, we wouldn't do an interview if we hadn't read the book and we would do an in-depth thing that with these yeah. reread yeah, sessions... But, I mean, the whole we, concept of this podcast of, is supposed to be yeah, different. Yeah, part of but... doing it was we don't have time to read the 12 books that we usually would. So let's revisit some people who we love and hear how they're doing. But that means we haven't always read all the books, but I kind of love that yeah. anyway. So. But of course it means that we just really, really yeah. want to because yeah. we always do really, <laughs> really enjoy reading the books and talking to people. It's but. always the way though. I mean, I am seriously one of yeah. those people who has like 30 books on their t TBR and I'm always like, people are saying, oh, have you read this? And I'm like, yes, yes, I'm just about to read it. Yeah, I'm always but like, oh, I've, had, I've heard it's amazing. There, I'm there. I just haven't got to it yet. I own it, but I haven't got to it yet. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, and we, we all have lives. <laughs> yeah, sadly have jobs. It's a very common sort of problem. Stuff. I can't just stay at home reading all day, which is a shame. Um, but Much as I would love to. <laughs> so... Did you were you working on this before or after Mindhunter came out on Netflix? Um, I was working on it, and I had I, it was in edits when Mindhunter um, came out, and I was like, "Oh my god, they've made the perfect series of one of my all-time favorite books!" Like Mindhunter by John Douglas was a book that I read. I mean, I probably didn't realize how it how much it had affected me, um, but I read it back when. Uh, I, I first went to university when I was like 19 or 20 and it just left it made a profound impression on me um, the idea that there was this whole unit of of forensic psychological profilers that had been set up in the states and to me it sounded a bit like someone with like psychic powers or something you know like yeah. it was like yeah. almost and and I'm sure to the people who first set up the unit the responses that they got from law enforcement professionals who 
who spoke to them was probably much the same you know they probably thought they yeah. were they were right um right up there with like psychic powers and ESP or something mm. but the psychological processes that they used were producing results so there wasn't there wasn't much that people could really say in the face of that and it was backed up by a lot of research and a lot of study about how serial offenders behave so i the reason why i ended up setting the book in the states is because yeah partly because of my fascination with that particular unit in the behavioral science unit um in quantico and i i was like okay well for me that is a really fascinating setting and also um that unit only really got going in about nine, between 1972 and 1974 so i thought well if teenagers if we're going to you know i was I, i was racking my brains i was trying to think how on earth would i get teenagers working <laughs> in this environment and then i thought well you know yeah. you know first of all i realized that um there was a whole there's a whole subset of serial killers in the states that are juveniles So I mean I know that's really creepy to think about um and quite depressing to read about I have to say but yeah a lot of people who start in that field <laughs> if you can call it that a lot of people who start start very young you know so they they're manifesting yeah. symptoms of it quite young mm. um people like Ted Bundy who some people say killed the, his first victim when he was 15 mm. so um it was immediately that was like my entry point for the narrative that there were juvenile serial killers that they do exist and the idea that the FBI could potentially recruit people who were teenage themselves to get more information out of juvenile offenders than an adult interviewer would i mean i just sort of thought well yeah that would immediately be a, a great way to introduce a teenager into that environment and if we set it back in like 1982 then that's only 10 years after behavioral science really got started as a discipline so they would still be doing innovative things they would still be trying trying new ideas you know i mean everyone yeah, thought they were it's all still new yeah every it's the 80s it's the People 80s <laughs> like why are you letting teenagers do this this is crazy that's right <laughs> <laughs> so i liked i really liked that idea i had my entry point and then i needed a character who i thought would make a good interviewer and then i thought um okay so i needed a character who is had some understanding of serial killers well the only way you get understanding of serial killers is if you either a are a serial killer or b you research or study serial killers which implies that you're an older older person or some sort of adult who's or academic or c that you're a potential victim of a serial killer so i thought yeah okay straight away that it was like okay i i have a protagonist who's already incredibly uh traumatized and and uh, easily triggered and angry and you know has all the symptoms of PTSD from being um a victim of a serial killer or an abduction by a serial killer and surviving that experience and now I'm going to plunge her back into this environment um where she has to confront people like the person who um who who took her 
So yeah, that was that was none shall sleep. That was the whole premise, and mm. I thought that's so intense for teenagers. But it <laughs> that was one of the reasons why. I, <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the reasons why I thought it would never sell. But yeah, it finally. Um, I guess people are more interested in that stuff than I anticipated. <laughs> I am fascinated to hear about your next book, though, because I have such a fascination with World War II, Homefront Britain, and I am fascinated ah. by Bletchley Park. And I know that this is a central part of your next novel. So have you, did you get, have you been there? Have you, have you got to, to visit? Cause I know you, uh, I know for the every series, you did some research in the UK and stuff way back many years ago. I remember you talking about that. So um, have you been able to travel and do some research for this, but also for Nunchell Sleep? Yeah, look, okay, for Nancha Sleep, I did not get to go because I wrote the book very quickly and I was thinking, oh, I'll go over and do the research for that. You know, this was like 2019 uh-huh. and then, of course, yep. end of 2019. Say no more. The, <laughs> yeah, we all know what we happened. We all know what happened. <laughs> um, and, then, and then, of course, we moved and then I thought, okay, well, that's fine. I'll. I just had a few things confirmed for me by people I knew in the states, um, and then I, because a lot of the story is set in locations where people are no longer able to go. Like Quantico is not a place where most people are allowed to to visit, even because it's still mm-hmm. a U.S. Um, Marine space, and um, and it's part of the. Yeah, you can't just walk. Yeah, up. you can't just can't walk, walk into an M- FBI <laughs> facility and check out whether or not the location <laughs> is authentic. So I thought I was on a pretty good wicket there, um, but um, but then yeah, so that didn't happen. Um, but it's I still somehow managed to to get everything right, which was good. <laughs> um, and for this one, no, again, you know, right around the time when I was thinking, oh, I could go to no, hang on, no, no one's going anywhere. Mm. <laughs> um, so I was stuck at home. But um, a friend of mine who was already over in the UK and was trying to get back home while she was over in the UK, she was visiting Bletchley Park and she actually brought me back some stuff. Some photos and some books and pamphlets and things like that, some documents from Bletchley Park. And this was while I was in the middle of researching. Because, yes, I I know, I love how you were saying that you obsess with Bletchley because I think a lot of people find the idea of Bletchley completely fascinating. It's amazing. And, and I, I have actually been is... there. I have been yeah. there. I can't wait to oh, go again. You? Yeah. Yeah. So oh I wanted to go on my first solo trip. I ended up going. So I want to go. I got the wrong train. I didn't get there till like late in the afternoon and it was autumn. So I didn't get very oh, long no. there. And I really, since then, um, Jack and I have watched the imitation game, which is probably how a lot of people know of Bletchley. Yeah. Um, brilliant movie, obviously. But since then, like, I really wanted to take Jack there while we lived in the UK. But thanks to lockdowns, we couldn't get there. Um, Thanks to lockdowns. Thanks to lockdowns. So maybe when we live back over there again, which is something we're hoping to do next year, it's on our list because we also lived in sort of the Midlands. So it was like quite far away. Like it's hard to to get to to Milton Keynes. But Bletchley itself is incredible and it's amazing to just walk around these buildings and walk around this it's essentially like a big estate um and it's amazing to walk around there and think how many people were here doing such important work and 
it was all yes. secret until the 70s. Like no one could say that they ever worked there, which also I'm, I'm assuming that you've also watched the uh, – what's the TV – is it the – The, the Bletchley Circle. Yeah. That I, was... I assume you've watched Yeah. That. <laughs> Brilliant. That was where I started. That was where I started because – we were all stuck inside. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I watched I watched the Bletchley Circle, and I, I look. This was I watched the, I watched that show before um, lockdown started, and I think it had already it had spent a little bit of time sitting in my brain and kind of you know cogitating. And then I thought, oh wow, that was really amazing. I love that. What if but teenage girls? <laughs> you know, because my brain is always... <laughs> but make it YA. But make it YA. My my brain is always yeah. jumping to, well, but what if there were teenagers doing this? And then, I don't know, and then it kind of went back to sleep for a little while. And then I started researching some stuff about Bletchley Park. And um, there was a book released in 2017 called Code Girls by uh, a woman called... An amazing academic work, by the way, um, if you get a chance to read it. It's completely fascinating. It's by Liza Mundy, and it goes into all the details about um, the relationship between allied codebreakers in the U.S., code girls in the U.S., and um, all of the women codebreakers who are working at Bletchley Park. And the first thing that I noticed about it was that Bletchley Park, the average age of the women who worked there was 19. So immediately I was like, oh, right, okay. So they are already all teenagers there. And then I started reading this other book, Code Girls, and there was a line in the book about chapter two or something, and it said, oh, and then the U.S. Army bought this facility called Arlington Hall, which was a former girls' school. And I was like, oh, right. I was like, this is just too ding, good. Ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> all my All my lights went off, and it was like, yes, this is my, this is my in. This is my entry point. Uh, we've got uh, this hot house environment of this former girls' school where all these girls used to live and, you know, play badminton and ride horses and do their elocution lessons and all that sort of stuff. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, the army descends and then takes over and then a certain number of them are recruited for the war effort. And, and straight after that, of course, your brain starts, you know, supplying a whole cast of characters <laughs> well my brain does <laughs> yeah I love that, that writer brain of yours wow <laughs> but yeah look Bletchley okay. is amazing and, then- and um, Arlington Hall is amazing too it's still part of the NSA so the National Security Agency in the US so there's another location where no go. one can go in and check so I'm like yeah <laughs> I'm on a winner I love that and by the time this airs, that will be out, which is really exciting. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. It's going to be amazing. Um, and is this part of a series as well? Um, no, I wrote that one as a standalone. So it'll be, I, I just loved, I loved the idea of these four girls who kind of gather together and solve this murder mystery. So they have to join forces to break the code pattern of a serial killer and then they're kind of, you know, trying not to get caught out during curfew when they're running around Washington, D.C., trying to track down this serial killer. And I wanted to introduce, you know, all of the um, elements of what was happening at the time in Washington, D.C., because it was a period of in- intense social change. There wasn't this strong sense of deprivation like there was in the U.K. You know, in the mm. U.K., they'd already been at war for a while, 
and there was rationing was really intense. People were living in um, in cold houses because they were rationing coal and oil and food, you know. Um, so there was a real sense of people having to pull together in harsh times, whereas Washington, D.C. was a very different environment. It, was, it, had, it had become a boom town. You know, it was the, it was the epicenter of war defense industries um, for the whole country. Yeah, and 200,000 government girls poured into wow. the city to fill in these roles in, in the defense department. And so there were girls everywhere, you know, all the, and all of the all of the sailors and and army you know, soldiers, you know, on off duty or f- coming in and out from training. Yeah. So it was a it was it was a pretty wild old town. <laughs> it had transformed from this sleepy kind of capital into Ooh. this this really happening, bustling town where girls used to hotbed, so that you know, like one girl would take the day shift where she could use the bed in this apartment and then she would get up, get changed and go to her night shift job while another girl came in and slept in the bed. You know, they were like that the stretched <laughs> for accommodation. Exactly yeah, the that's same. Crazy. Wow. Oh, my God. Exactly the same. Oh, my, God. Oh my goodness. And um, so, obviously yeah. this is only just coming out, so this has been a big focus for you, but – is there anything else, any yes. any other obscure things that have sort of taken root in your brain that you're <laughs> keen to research? Because it sounds like that's always, how all your ideas obscure, start. obscure, weird things. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was, I was just talking about that um, the other day and saying that, you know, I think it's an occupational hazard where you, as a writer, or I don't know, maybe it's just me, <laughs> where you get a little <laughs> obsession of, you know, you start, you get an interest in something and then you go, oh, I'll dig into that a little. And then you just completely dive down the rabbit hole. And that's usually, yeah, where I get all my good ideas. Um, but after after the Killing Code comes out, I mean, I'm going to be in the States for that release. And then I come back here and... Uh, Wonderful. Yeah. Enjoy I was that. Looking at, um <laughs> Yes, I just booked the accommodation for New York City, which is really exciting. Cool. And so, yeah, I'm launching that one at Books of Wonder. And then I'll be back here in time to do a launch in Melbourne as well. So it's going to be a very busy time. And then, believe it or not, the sequel to Nunchal Sleep is coming out in June. So as soon as... Oh, wow, that is quick. It's so fast. Ooh. As soon as I finish the release book period Book in September for and a book in June. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I know. So it's going to be, it's going to be absolutely whew, off the wall <laughs> for the next, <laughs> for the next six months or more. It's going to be very busy. Yeah. Wow. wow. And I'm curious, do you uh, consume much, you know, I've always got a true crime podcast on, but considering the topics that you have been writing about recently, do you consume much of that sort of true crime content to sort of help with the research process of what's going to happen? I, yeah. Look, I have to separate a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm actually um, completely fascinated with some true crime stuff. Although um, I think I'm pretty selective about which true, true crime podcasts and shows I'm, I'm kind of, you know, taking in because um, I'm really looking for something that's a bit, a bit. L- I don't want to get too sensationalized 
you know, and I don't mm. want to listen to stuff that's too sensationalized. And I also don't want to get really depressed. So <laughs> you need a, I you often need a find mix. that. It, yeah. 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 You need to filter what's coming in. Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. the word. I have a couple. That's, that's I have word, a couple filtering. that I, I'm not. I like true crime podcasts, but I like my true crime podcast. Like I don't listen to everything. Um, and I've recently found red handed. Yeah. I don't know if you've listened to them. They're really good, very well researched, but I also like the way that they tell it very compassionate and ethical. I was listening to this one called real crime profile. I don't know if you've heard no. of them, but, um, the people who run that, are really good and they're very victim centered. Mm. So I really like that. Again, I think this is, you know how we were talking about how the way that language and stuff has changed with YA. I think even over like the past year, two years, the language that we use around anything involving true crime crime and also sexual assault, obviously with Me Too, the way that we talk about people and the way that a lot of things have become a lot more victim focused has been so positive to see. And I think so red handed is one that I recommend because I'm very I'm conscious about that too like I think what how would I want to report stuff in the media and I would say I'm quite an ethical journalist like it really like is something that's very important to me so what I consume I like to make sure is quite ethical as well Um, and I find they're very well researched and very conscious of different elements as well absolutely I look I mean it's really interesting to see how live real investigations pan out because you know unlike the movies there's a lot of there's well people make mistakes and or overlook things or fail to pick up on something you know there's a huge amount of human error there's a huge amount of just you know basic attention to detail because a lot of people who work in law enforcement are just incredibly overworked (laughs) and exhausted all the time and even just unconscious bias that we all have for you know yeah you know absolutely different races and things like that that plays into it hugely and like i mean the the classic example of this of course is um the way that you know murders of gay men or murders of sex workers were for many years completely ignored uh, because That's of right. attitudes in society and in law enforcement and stuff. So I think it's it's really inter- it's important, I think, for us to look back on that and and learn from yeah. it as well. Agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I just, I can't You're even imagine welcome. what your Google search history is like. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly horrific, actually. Um, <laughs> And very and very eclectic. At the moment, it'll be like, oh, what really good foods can I get in New York City? And can I had to look up a list of serial rapists in the USA? And I was like, yeah, that's interesting combination right there on my tabs. Yeah. Bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right there next to each other. Um, yeah, this, like, I know. <laughs> yeah. Where can people find and follow you online? Oh, okay. I am on everything now. Did you know? <laughs> I am one of the one of the um, elder people who exist on also exist on TikTok. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> which um, my which my kids find completely hilarious. So I'm at Ellie Money author on TikTok, but I'm also still on Twitter and Instagram as um, Ellie Money, all one word. 
Um, and I'm on FB as well. I have a page on FB, but that is really kind of a notice page as well. Um, yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, look, thank you so much for having me to talk. It's yeah. Wonderful. It's really good to see you again. It's been <laughs> such a long time. It's been so long. Okay. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review. Mm-hmm.